Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. Hey, Vivica. Hi, Susan. Hope you're doing well. I am. I'm really excited, enjoying the start of fall. Yes. It's the first day of October when we're taping this. My favorite time of year. And our birthday month, and pumpkins, and fall leaves, and crisp apples, and Yeah, I love this time of year and also a great time of year for quilting. Absolutely a great time of year for quilting. So it's finally quilt season, Um, you know, in the most traditional sense of the word, it's finally quilt season. Hey, our listeners probably don't know that you and I almost share a birthday. Yeah, yeah. One day apart on Halloween and you're the day before. I always said that my mother got scared by a trick-or-treater at the door a day early. (laughs) And I always say that I might be a witch, so watch out. I sure hope you're not. You're too nice (laughs) for that. You're too nice for that. But, you know, I was reminded so much of how much I love fall and the beautiful colors of fall and orange and October and all that yesterday when I pulled out an old cover of Quilting Arts Magazine and your pumpkin quilt is on the cover. And, yeah, I actually used that for a... um, for just a, a promotional um, blog post that I had to write. And I, I pulled out that quilt and I'm like, oh my gosh, I loved that cover of your pumpkins. Oh, thank you. Well, I've, I think I've made five pieces um, with pumpkins and I have a great photo of pumpkins and bittersweet that I took years ago that I've been thinking I might pull out and do a new piece. But yeah, I have a very real affinity for pumpkins because of the Halloween thing. Right. My mother used to make a um, pumpkin themed birthday cake for me when I was very little. It, it wasn't pumpkin flavor because I'm, you know, unlike everybody else, I'm really not fond of the pumpkin flavor, but oh, it, that it is was blasphemy. I know. I know. I do not <laughs> jump into the pumpkin spice world. And um, yeah, that's, that's just not in my flavor. Uh, you know, I just don't like it anyway. Um, but she made the birthday cake that was, you know, the orange birthday cake and made it look like a pumpkin and everything. My favorite birthday cake. And like, I'm hoping someone makes it for me this year. I hope my husband listens to this podcast is carrot cake. I Mm. love carrot cake. Yeah. And you know what? My favorite birthday cake and my, my, traditional birthday cake as a kid, my mother used to make angel food cake with um, what we call boiled frosting, which was um, a sugar, hot sugar spun frosting with egg whites that makes, some people call it sea foam or something like that. But yeah, I, and I can only make it for myself when the weather is just right because you can't have high humidity to make that kind of frosting. Right. That's a problem in North Carolina, isn't it? It is. I have to wait for the perfect fall day to make it. So my mother made boiled frosting too. And what I liked about it is that it got crunchy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm hungry. Well, <laughs> when am I not hungry? <laughs> but um, I think our moms probably shared some of the same loves of art and craft that we share too. I, I Absolutely. Know my mom was like unbelievable crafter. She made one thing that was quilted and it was not my favorite thing ever. She made a, um, it was hexagons and it was probably in 1976 when everyone was starting to learn to quilt Mm -hmm. and it was a paper piece hexagon, probably like a table runner, but it was short. It wasn't more than two feet long and it was oddly shaped because it was all hexagons and she finished it and she's like done with that never again. (laughs) 
well, my mom was a home ec major and she was a quilter. Um, and we did, we did some quilting in the seventies together. And, but she turned out to be a terrific traditional quilter and was very precise. Um, also did beautiful handwork. I, I just was pulling out some of her cross stitch and embroidery work. Um, she died about 10 years ago, but I, when we moved, I've uncovered, unearthed some of the stuff she left behind and some of her projects I've finished up. Other ones, I'm not sure I will, but it, uh, yeah, she loved doing handwork yeah. and um, kind of passed that on to me, taught me a little bit. Sometimes I'd go back to her when I was interested in something and say, okay, show me how to do this or tell me a resource for this. Right. So my mom was very into embroidery and all of the embroidery or nearly all of the embroidery she did was using um, the Danish handcrafter guild embroidery patterns. And they are just exquisite. A lot of them are really mid-century modern and beautiful. Some of them are very representational with birds and things. I'm going to promote what my mom did probably in 1980 and put it on the website because I think it's one of the most precious things that I have. My mom died 15 years ago, but um, she made a bird feeder that took her many, many, many months to make. And the birds are all embroidered on it, which I just thought were beautiful. But, um, you know, I inherited all of my grandmother's embroidery floss too, which is the Danish handcrafter embroidery floss. And it's vegetable dyed. It is exquisite. Some of it's pretty old, but it's still strong enough to use. Mm -hmm. And I try to, um, I use it. Now I'm starting to share it in my little, um, I do little gift packets for people when I see them now. I have one of those. Right, right. What do we call them? Make something awesome packets. And I put a little piece of fabric and a few different fabrics, a few different threads and just encourage people to do handwork because I think it's really good for your soul. And it's something that I was so encouraged to do as a kid to the point that, and I've probably said this before, we weren't really allowed to watch TV unless we had something in our hands when we were little. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is all three of my siblings. And I think I was the only one that actually followed the rules. But um, if I wanted to watch Gilligan's Island, I had to be doing something. So I would get out knitting and knit horribly for a long time until I really learned to do it well or my embroidery or um, she, my mom would make us iron. And uh, just, I can't believe that I actually iron things. Forced ironing. That's Forced horrible. ironing. Yes. <laughs> Punishment. <laughs> but, you know, handwork shouldn't be a punishment. It's something that we should all do because it's so good for your soul. I just, I really think it's good for your soul. Yeah. It's interesting that your mom made that, linked that to watching TV. So, so why do you think it was so important for, for her, for her children to learn that kind of handcraft? Well, I think it, I think there were probably a lot of things um, she might've had to go to therapy about, <laughs> about that, but um, she did believe that idle hands were the devil's workshop. So <laughs> watching TV looked pretty idle to her. And um, I think how she justified in many, oh, and this is getting into the, you know, therapy for myself, probably as well as therapy for my mom, but she watched a lot of soap operas, like everybody did in 1960s, you know, every housewife did that kind of thing. And so I think to justify that, she was like, well, I'll iron or I'll sew or I'll do Mm -hmm. something. And then she would, if she saw us watching like Gilligan's Island, she'd be like, what are you doing? You have to be doing something. So, um, you know, I think she wanted us to, to just not sit and watch TV, which, you know, it's not a good thing to do anyway. So, well, I have really turned even more to handwork 
I think since my mother died and my dad was diagnosed with dementia and um, I was helping to care for him and the stress was very high and it helped me. We've talked before about my dishcloths that I've been doing, mm-hmm. but um, also cross stitch. I find it's so intense and I've do, I'm doing it on teeny tiny count linen. So it's, it's, it can, you know, be very intense, but at the same time, if you focus on something really intensely, it can be very relaxing and meditative. And so to me, that's a big draw. That's a big deal if I can bring my blood pressure down. Yeah, I I have to agree that cross stitch does that. I wish I could see a little bit better to do it, but then I'd Mm -hmm. have to do it. So I have a great magnifying light glass and light that has made a big difference for me. Otherwise I would not be able to do the tiny, tiny stuff I'm doing. I just have visions of my grandmother who was, who was just an exquisite needlewoman. She just did everything and she did it well and exquisitely. But I, I can see her sitting in her little blue chair in her living room. And she had on one of those, um, it would sit on top of her bust. It was a uh, great big magnifier and she had her light behind her and she would cross stitch into her nineties and I have lots of her pieces too. Oh, isn't it wonderful to have those things from, you know, I have quilts from my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother. And I love it. I love looking at those stitches and thinking that those hands of people I'm descended from put those stitches in. And it's different if it's handwork than if it's a machine piece too. I made a quilt about hands, actually, and the hands of generationally the hands of um, the people in my family and it was the women. So it had my daughter who was probably like nine at that time, myself, my mother, my sister, I believe it has my sister-in-laws and in the center, well, wait, in the center, it might've been my mom's hand, but my grandmother's hand too. So we had the, we had great grandmother, grandmother, mother, four generations in the one quilt, but I was able to trace all the hands. So it was, it was like totally meaningful. And I love handwork on quilts. And that is sort of the topic that we're talking about today. Actually, it's everything about handwork. And, you know, some people don't really realize how much handwork there can be on art quilts too, because, you know, we think of handwork as being on some of the traditional quilts, but there are a lot of art quilters and contemporary quilters and modern quilters now that are adding handwork, sometimes combinations of machine stitching and handwork, which I do too, which makes it so much more meaningful and you feel the the hand of the maker in the work. And that connection and that connection. Mm -hmm. Well, we are so lucky to have an artist in residence who actually does that. She works by machine. She works by hand. She, she knits, she crochets. She probably does everything out there by hand. And we'll have to see if she does tatting too. But um, our artist in residence is Catherine Redford, and we're so excited to have her here. So let's take a very short break, Susan, and come back with Catherine Redford. Today, we're going to take a moment to slow down, step back, and talk about something we all enjoy, creating artwork by hand. Our artist-in-residence, Catherine Redford, is no stranger to this topic. Although she's very well known for sharing her love of machine quilting through best-selling workshops, books, lectures, and in-person events, Catherine also excels at handwork. She's an award-winning fiber artist who still loves to learn and pass on her knowledge. 
She teaches quilting and embroidery around the United States and beyond. She's been married to her husband, Steve, for close to 40 years. They have four children and a wonderful collection of grandchildren. I was just with Catherine a few weeks ago in Ohio for the taping of Quilting Arts TV. And just wait, Susan, until you see her amazing artistic embroideries that she's been doing. And they are all by hand. Uh, I wish I could have been there to see them. I know. I know. Welcome, Catherine. So nice to see you. Hey, Catherine. Good to see you too. And and especially Susan, because we miss seeing you the other week. Yeah, we really missed you, Susan, at Quilting Arts TV. It wasn't the same. It was still fun. It was still good. But I think I missed you the most of everybody. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I miss being there. And, uh, you know, one of the most fun things is to to see the faces and to see the beautiful work. Um, I've seen photos of some of your beautiful butterflies in your latest book, Catherine, but you got to see them in person, right? I did get to see them in person. I got really up close and personal, took a lot of photos and some of which I'll share in our show notes. So if you want to see some of these images, please go to quiltingdaily.com and click on the Quilting Arts podcast and go to the show notes. so You can actually see some of these beautiful embroideries up close because I actually did not hold back with my, um, with my camera, Catherine. They were absolutely beautiful. So um, I'm so glad you could come and talk to us at the podcast because this is just a different forum to, you know, get the word out about what people do and to have a great conversation. But, um, you know, you are someone who I think people think of as this, you know, excellent machine quilter, piecer, modern quilter. And this might be something that people don't know about you, that you are just really into handwork too. So tell me about this passion you have for handwork. Yeah, well, my first stitching I remember doing was sort of at the age of six or seven. And I'm sure it was because my mum wanted to keep me busy because, you know, I kept following her and her best friend around the house, right? You know, Auntie Barbara, who lived across the road, was a self-taught seamstress and my mum was a home ec teacher and they was always up to something. And I always wanted to join in with the grown-up conversation and I'm sure they had conversations they didn't want me to be listening to. So my mum gave me one of those uh, stamped tablecloths that she thought would take me the next year to do. But of course, I I discovered that I love doing it, you know, lazy daisy stitch and a a little bit of stem stitch and we got the tablecloth done. So I just carried on from there. My mum's sister was considerably younger than her and uh, she was getting married and I did a tablecloth and napkins on gingham. You know, I, I put cross, I made cross stitch designs all over it. And I wasn't 10. I mean, I know I was, I was less than that. And then I went to this girls school. I switched schools for fourth grade. And I went to this all girls school where we, we did all these ladylike things like learn to eat properly, you know, <laughs> and we wore hats and, and the blazers with the trim and, and all that good stuff. So we, we did hand sewing and we, we did embroidery. So Catherine, is this real school? Do they really do this to children in Great Britain? Do they, they separate them out? Or was this girls school something like um, our Girl Scout project would have been? No, 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 no. The girls... This was a private school, so you took an entrance exam. So the girls were on one side of the street and the boys were on the other side of the street. And the vice principal would walk up and down the street at lunchtime to make sure that those of us that had homerooms overlooking the street didn't look out of them. (laughs) So we weren't looking at the boys because, you know, we'd be distracted from our work. 
So no, this was this was this was real school, and it still exists. Although uh, I do know that now the because uh, it goes all the way from five up the way to eighteen. So I do know that the last two years now they do have classes with the boys, but I'm sure there's lots of supervision. Wow, wow, <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's 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 just a, a a different thing. But you know, even in the public school system in England, they they still do have some girls' schools and some boys' schools. You know, there's different research that suggests different things, and um, it's supposed to be better for the girls, but worse for the boys. Oh, really? Oh, that's sort of interesting. Having yeah. both girls and boys. You and I both have girls and boys. Um, I I wonder, do do your boys do any handwork? And I'm thinking needlework. You know. Okay, well, I don't know if I'm letting on, but they used to. They're old enough now that I don't think they mind people knowing, you know? And my husband used to do needlepoint because his grandmother and mother did it. And so I, and he was kind of an only child. He was born 13 years after his older brother. And so, yeah, he, he did needlepoint. Yeah. And I've, I've taught my kids how to knit. And the only one that gets it is my 21 year old. And he was actually Hmm. knitting at college. And I think part of it was there were really cute girls in the knitting club. Ah. And that lasted, you know, I sent him, I sent him some yarn and needles last year and I'm not so sure how far he got, but I haven't seen the yarn or needles back. So maybe he's still using that. And my husband, Susan has picked up every once in a while, he picks up this cross stitch project that he had been knitting. And it was one of those, I know you were doing it too. Is it Prairie Schooler brand that has the Santas? Yeah. My mother got me, she, well, she did a, like 15 of them and I gave some of them to her, to her good friends after her death and kept some, but there were, there was one that wasn't finished and it just broke my heart because it, it was like, that's, that was her life. You know, all of a sudden it's gone. And so I had to finish it. And that's how, that's what got me hooked on cross stitch. And that reminds me, I have several that I haven't done. Yeah. You know, handwork is so, there was that slow stitching movement a couple of years ago where people were talking about why we want to slow down. What are we looking for when we turn to handcraft? Do you have any thoughts on that, Catherine? It's interesting because, um, you know, Vivica was talking about her mum keeping her, her hands busy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of feel that I came from that school where you know you had to be busy and so I'd hand stitch to be busy and these days you know I'm sometimes up against a deadline and so it's hard then to embrace that slow stitching relaxed thing but with the last six months and being at home and 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 lacking quite so much of the deadline thing I really have been trying to concentrate on thinking you don't have to get this done today you can take your time, you know, uh, work, work on this bit. And when you're ready to do the next bit, you can do that bit. Enjoy the journey. You know, all those thoughts I have to be telling myself, you know, it, this isn't a competition. It's not a race. So, you know, it's, it's a very hard balancing act sometimes, especially, you know, when I am trying to, you know, make it my profession, that deadline against the actual enjoyment of the art. And, you know, I want my students to enjoy the art. And the best way for me to be able to communicate that is if I'm actually doing that for myself. So I've been trying to slow down. I also have a theory that some personality types need to produce a product that they that their sense of self-worth or of value is to create a product. And that's very much me. Um, 
you know, if I weren't doing, if I weren't creating art, I think I would be making pie or food <laughs> because there again, you're creating a product that others appreciate in one way or the other. But some people don't find that a value at all. They don't, or they don't value it. So for me, when I'm working with my hands and creating something beautiful, it makes me feel like I'm doing something good and productive. I've been in the States 25 years. So when I moved here, the children were little, you know, and I live in Illinois. So, you know, we have the snow and the bad weather and you'd wash the kitchen floor and they'd come in and it'd be dirty again. And certainly when I started learning to quilt, the sense of actually producing something that was permanent was very important to me. But there again, it didn't have to be useful. People would say, well, what are you making that for? What are you going, how are you going to use it? That wasn't important but it was important to finish. I could put it in a plastic box and store it. That didn't bother me. But actually finishing things was important. Do you finish everything now? No. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't encourage my students to finish things. So, you know, I like to teach technique. I like to give them the skills so that they can go and do their own thing. So they can add whatever techniques I've taught to whatever projects they like to work on. So in class... It's definitely not project oriented. Mm -hmm. It's always technique oriented. We're not producing the beginning of that prize winning quilt. We're producing something that you can now use on your quilt or, or, you know, whatever you're making, but we're not actually doing a project. It's the artist in you. Yeah. The artist in you, Catherine, I imagine takes classes just to learn the, how do I do it? And then you're probably working in your brain. How can I alter it, make it my own? What can I use this thing for? It's probably not going to be for what it started out being for. But I can see someone taking your new book, which is so beautiful. It's called Butterfly Stitches. Don't, don't Google that. If you Google it, you don't see pictures of butterflies. I know. I, I Googled it earlier and yeah. it, I had to laugh because it was all about um, Band-Aids. It is indeed. And I didn't realize that when the title was suggested to me. Um, but there you go. It, it's a talking point. All right. Let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. When I was at Quilting Arts TV just two weeks ago, I can't believe it was only two weeks ago because it seems like so much has happened in our world and everything since I saw you, Catherine, so much has happened. But I was so happy to actually get a copy of Butterfly Stitches because Catherine handed me one of her very own copies and I noticed that it is not signed inside, but I'm not going to even call you out for that. I promised I wasn't going to call you out for that. But um, I got my hands on it and one thing about taping a quilting arts TV show in the time of COVID is that I decided I was not going to fly. I was going to drive 10 hours basically, but I was so happy that my colleague, Christine Lundblad wanted to drive with me as well. So we did it together. So part of the time where she was driving back, I actually pulled out the book and I just started drooling because not only have I seen these quilts in person and they are beautiful, but the quilts are basically about the hand embroidery wool applique designs that Catherine designed that are butterflies and moths and things like that. But 
it's about the embroidery on them. And you can use this kind of embroidery and this kind of applique design in a quilt, which she does. And I just love it because they are so artful and artistic and gorgeous. Well, thank you. So A, thank you for making that book. And B, 27, I think I counted 27 different stitches that you use. And I have this question because like, I do a lot of knitting and I know you do too, but I can't remember how to do like a left or a right increase when I'm making a raglan sweater. And I have made 40 raglan sweaters, probably maybe not that much, but you'd think I would remember how to do it. And I have to look it up every single time. So I don't do it the wrong direction. Do you have to look up your stitches every single time or can you remember all these? Well, the stitches that I used in the book I know they're part of my vocabulary. I can do those without looking. However, there are other stitches that I like to do, maybe a little bit more complicated, where I do look them up. So like when I'm teaching, I do basic stitches. I have, you know, I have a list of what we're going to do. And I always tell people, you know, if you've seen a stitch, you can ask me, but, you know, give me a moment. And I, and I do, I, ha- I have a, a stack of um, textbooks, you know, reference books, uh, because I, I, yeah, I need reminding sometimes because it's like, now does the, does the thread go behind or on top? But usually once you've got the basics down and you're used to um, holding the needle and, you know, holding the thread and everything, the in- instructions for other stitches that you don't use so often make more sense right you know so because you're you're used to knowing that if you put the thread over the top it does this if it goes clockwise it does that you know it so the basics really help you to understand then just some written instructions so what i love too is that a lot of these stitches that you use build on themselves like you use a chain stitch and then you sort of duplicate it or you embellish the chain stitch or you add beads or whatever. It's, it's definitely a new stitch when you do it, but I love that. I love those, you know, different little extras that I saw. I always say things that I do when they're not difficult. I don't always say that they're easy. You know, simple is different to easy. Yes. You know, I try and use the word straightforward or, you know, because if, if, if I say, oh, it's so easy, anyone can do it. Well, that's not actually true, is it? Running stitch. Running stitch is so easy that anyone can do it. <laughs> Running stitch maybe, but you know, if you want, the, the thing is you have to persuade people that some people, an even running stitch comes, you know, really easily. But some people, you know, they, they have problems and then it's an uneven running stitch, you know, and we embrace the differences. And, and, you know, and, and I like to use the word folk art. It's an interesting term because a lot of us, especially here in the States, we, when, we, when we use the word folk art, we think of like primitive uh, early American style. But really folk art is just art by the people, art by people without a formal education. You know, they've not had an apprenticeship. And uh, my classes are not formal. So I try and encourage people to, to think in terms of a, a folk art style where um, quirkiness is good, uh, differences are embraced, you know, and, and you, you, we can learn from each other. You know, there's, there's usually um, some sort of tradition from learning from each other in folk art. Um, but then we make it our own and we use today's, we use today's uh, 
items, you know, um, today's thread, today's needles, today's needle threaders for those that need them. You know, we make use of everything that's available now. During quarantine, my daughter, Julia, was feeling a good amount of anxiety. And so I was telling her that handwork helps me. Yep. So we got out some embroidery thread and she had seen some cool things on Pinterest that she really liked. And so we ordered some little hoops and she got to work and she, she did some, I pulled out my books, my little books of stitches to give to her. And she was like, Oh no, I'm going to go on YouTube. <laughs> so she was getting a lot of her information from seeing people make the stitches, the same reason it's helpful to go take a class with somebody like you, um, rather than to get it, you know, some people learn it better from a book, some people learn it better in a class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, YouTube's one of those things, isn't it? You know, if it's free, what are you getting? Now, some people put wonderful free stuff out there. But some of it, I just look at it. And I'm like, really? (laughs) that is not the easiest way to do that it's so true i can i can can show you a better way you know but and then some of it's wonderful and uh, some people are very generous i i'm i'm always concerned if i if i was to put anything out i want it well recorded i want it recorded the same way it's done on quilting arts tv i want five cameras i want everybody focused on me (laughs) you know and i can't do that myself video production is hard And I'm sure our audio producer here would agree that audio production is not always straightforward either. So, you know, making sure that someone really understands, I think is, it's basically instructional design and you have to understand how people learn and the best way to present the right kind of content. And you were mentioning that you had like a whole stack of embroidery books and, you know, quilting books, et cetera. So I'm just curious if you had ever heard of, Erica Wilson, because when I was a kid, Julia Child was like, obviously, that was children's television where I came from. We would watch Julia Child and learn, watch the cooking show. (laughs) And after, sometimes after the Julia Child show, there was the Erica Wilson show. And it was, it was embroidery. And it was amazing that this woman, she could just like whip it all out. And it was mostly cruel type embroidery that she was doing, but I was just fascinated as a little girl. Yeah. No, I, I, I haven't seen. I bet some of our, I bet some of our listeners know exactly what I'm I'm talking about. Yeah. Was she in, in the States? No, I think she was in the States and I don't remember if she was originally from the States, but who, who are like your mentors for handwork? And it doesn't just have to be embroidery. It could be hand quilting and stuff. Cause I can certainly think of plenty of people who I would love to learn from, from, for hand quilting too. You know, Judith Baker Montana was always, you know, like that she's somebody I was aware of. Yeah, she's extraordinary. With her crazy quilting and the ribbon work. And, you know, I took a class from her um, years ago at a quilt show because I, you know, I got her book and I wanted to meet her. So, and she did some lovely, she went into some lovely free form work and, and stuff. And then um, actually 10 years ago, I met Sue Spargo. We were both vending at a doll makers convention, which was an interesting event to be at. Anyway, so I met her for the first time then. And um, her stuff is amazing. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, and and she, she had, you know, she's, she was brought up in, you know, in in the south part of Africa. And then she's lived in, in, England and, and then over here and and so uh, we share some common 
bringing up, you know, and she's really developed all her handwork. So 10 years ago, she was just starting to add embroidery. And um, so, I mean, she's, she just does so much. And her quilting, her, I, you know, it's not just quilting, her embroidered quilts are exquisite. And you can just pick that out. You know, I could go into a world of all sorts of different quilts and I could pick out her style. Yeah. Her style is instantly recognizable, which is interesting. Because I think I think you can you know you can you can pick out out a Judith Baker Montano you can pick up a pick out a Sue Spargo and and that's always something that I've been you know trying to work on is well what is the Catherine Redford style and I'm just so eclectic and like you said you know I I I teach the um, machine quilting and I teach the handwork so it's been interesting to try and you know develop the handwork as well, you know, because I'm not full-time handwork. Yeah. However, you, you do have a style and... Yeah, I hope so. I've, I've tried. I think a lot of it is expressed in this new book too, because, um, you know, you are using the chain stitch in all of your work. And so one thing I love about your embroideries um, that I saw, and I'm just going to just describe one because it's so, it was so exquisite, like just something that was on the cover of your book, for instance. So you have a piece of wool and you have, I think some of these are single pieces of wool that you've made a embroidery. Um, you know, you've basically cut in a shape and then you've embroidered around. You're using chain stitch as like the outline for all of these. You fill in sometimes with chain stitch. You use multiple, multiple colors of thread on your work, but then you also use multiple colors of felt as well. And then having these um, applied or applique to quilts, similar to um, the white background quilt that you have with all sorts of different butterflies, probably all of them that you had in this book. I think there were 18 if I'm not mistaken, but they're all applied. And the quilt is contemporary yet folksy at the same time. So you do have a style. Yeah. Well, the, the, um, the one you say where it's a solid piece, that's actually a solid piece of cotton fabric. So I did the embroidery like on a square of cotton fabric, and then I put the wool felt behind it because I like making those standalone applique pieces because then I can quilt the quilt as a whole cloth quilt. Now, if I was just to take the cotton piece and uh, put that on top, the quilting actually shadows through. So by giving it a little bit more body, it you know draws attention to it, uh, uh, it helps it shine, but it also, you know, there's a method in my madness. It means that I can quilt a quilt as a whole cloth quilt without the stops and starts. And um, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's a technique that makes it easier for me, but it also, it does, it adds dimension to the quilt, even when it's just the embroidered quilt. So when, when I'm embroidering just on the um, solid fabrics, I do use a lot more stitches, a lot more colored um, threads, because I've just got one color behind. When I'm doing the wool appliques, I sort of simplify the design to make it easier to cut the pieces out and, and put them down. I whip stitch those down and then I add the embroidery as an embellishment. So because I've used the multiple colors of wool, I want the wool to show. I, I don't want to completely cover it with embroidery. I, I want that the, the different colors of the wool felt to, to shine through. So which is easier? They're just different. 
with the wool, I have to watch that I don't go wild with the embroidery because I want to see the wool. They're both really effective. These are really, really effective ways to do it. Um, yeah. And I bet having doing individual pieces is also so much easier for taking it with you. Not that we're going anywhere right oh, now, yeah. but um, if in some magical time period, we can go somewhere again and I can get on an airplane. I love embroidering on an airplane. Yeah, well, chain stitch is great on the airplane because, um, you know, you just keep going and, and you can cut your piece of thread and just keep sewing and get another piece of thread and it, it's very straightforward. Some of the, the other stitches, um, you know, you, you don't want to hit a pocket of turbulence. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and, it, and, you know, and it's difficult because... I find with the chain stitch, I'm okay without the tray table up. I can keep things in my lap and they don't go everywhere. Once I start moving into the other stitches, I need my tray table because I need to, you know, put everything on it. You know, I put the beads around the wool ones. So the wool ones, I, I, I've actually backstitched a row of beads, uh, small seed beads around each one because I just love the way that looks. That's not something to do in a plane or a moving car. <laughs> you know, I, I have to have the beads in a tray and they have to be on a table. I know, I know people do works with beads on the sofa and occasionally I think, oh yeah, I could do that. But at some point I forget and I get up and they go everywhere. I think you've brought up another good point, another good reason to do handwork, and that is that it's transportable. And that's another thing I got into when I had little kids and I was going to the dentist and I was going to soccer practices is that you can pack it up and you can take it along with you, which is a, a wonderful thing about handwork. And you get to talk to people. Right. You meet different people. So if you've got the knitting, you, you talk to one set of people. And if you've got the embroidery, it's a different set of people. You know, um, I was working on, on one thing where I actually got a big sheet of cotton and I had lots of motifs and I was just working my way around them. And uh, sitting at the gate, you know, waiting for my plane. I, I was going to Santa Barbara and I met somebody while I was at the gate who was, she was flying up to Fargo and she was actually going to be in my class in Grand Forks in two months time. Oh, funny. I mean, it's just a small world and you meet everybody. If you're doing something, you know, unusual, people want to know about it. And children usually yes. want to know about it. They are very interested. And it makes me sad sometimes because I think there are a lot of children who would love to do handwork. Yes. They're drawn to it. But if they don't have parents or teachers or other adults in their lives who do it, they're missing out. Yeah. And it's a shame that we're not teaching it more in school, in like kindergarten and first grade. Yeah, we actually, I went to a village school before I went to the girls' school. So there was two rooms with 30 pupils in each room and we learned to knit. And I'd already learned to knit from grandma. So I know that we learned to knit in the equivalent of first grade here at school. So I'd made a dishcloth before that. Isn't it cool, though, that a lot of European countries still allow knitting, even like in high school, they allow knitting mm -hmm. in math class. And I, you know, I am such an advocate for this. I knit like a rabid knitter. I love knitting because that's that's not work for me. It is totally relaxing and I can do it while watching TV. And thanks, mom. My hands are busy, so not the devil's workshop. <laughs> so anyway, so I was reading something about Finland and how they have like the best education system and um, they allow knitting in their classes. And 
I can tell you firsthand, I learn more. I understand more if I am listening and my hands are busy. I think that may be partly because certain activities are what they call integrating activities for the brain. For example, rocking in a rocking chair. The reason we rock babies is that it's good for your brain. It connects the synapses in some way. And the neurologists will tell you this. A lot of schools have started now, well, maybe not a lot, letting kids chew gum because chewing gum is another integrating activity for the brain. So something that's repetitive and has a rhythm to it is an integrating activity. And so there's, it doesn't surprise me at all that it helps you to do math or it helps you to, you know, put words together. Uh, All of these things, when you have a pattern and a rhythm, they help your brain. We were always told that 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 hand-eye coordination thing, you know, and getting that repetition going was was very healthy. We were told like jigsaw puzzles were good for learning to read, you know. So, yeah, we did a lot of um, hand-eye small motor skill things in our schools. Um, it's just it's hard these days when they've got so much to do. But my one daughter, she actually wrote a paper when she was at junior high about why they should be allowed to chew gum and how good it was for you. Yeah, they should. Yeah. My mom just said it looked like a cow. <laughs> We're all marked by what our mothers say and do, do aren't we? <laughs> poor mom. Poor mom. She's, she's not here to, to speak for herself, you know? Well, I always tell my kids that MOM stands for mean old mom. And I'm just giving you something to go to therapy about when you get older. And I have a son-in-law who's a therapist. There you go. So, you know, it's keeping him in business. Too funny. The other hand work I do, you know, I do English paper piecing. Mm-hmm. So I like to say I am an English paper piecer, you know. There you go. <laughs> and, and we did that at high school in the lunch hour. So it wasn't like a class. We, we actually, uh, I remember sewing one inch squares over bits of paper to make something. I've no idea what it was we thought we were making. But I, I remember sewing those together. It was really ugly. <laughs> and I do have to say, like, we, we shared a room actually once at QuiltCon a couple of years ago. And you are an excellent knitter. You are an exquisite knitter. You had a, a scarf there or a shawl that I, I still think about. I still, I've put it in my cart a few times. Like, I've, I've filled my cart with all the yarn and I've taken my cart, emptied it and filled it up again because, you know, it's going to be just like Catherine's. Well, you know, I, I think I've never had a problem with like the tension. Um, so, or making even stitches. My mom, she was a home ec teacher and it wasn't until after she died that I saw her things that she made at college and they were amazing, mm-hmm. but she hated hand stitching. I mean, she hated it with a passion and, she, and her doctor kept telling her she should relax. And at one point I bought her a painted canvas so she could needle point and she just couldn't keep it relaxed Mm. you know it came back to me she'd done a corner and I had to cut it all out really carefully and I restitched it and and she made it into um, a fire screen you know but I never had a problem with the tension or the size of my stitches and I guess you know I learned to knit when I was very little and I learned to sew when I was little and I didn't know that it was something that you would get tense about or that you shouldn't relax with it was always a game it was always just a fun pastime nobody was making me do it you know people thought I was doing my homework you know in England you do these big exams at the end of 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 your high school and uh, we've been talking about it in our family a little bit more because um, Catherine did a very good marketing job on what exam results she expected but she wasn't actually doing the work so (laughs) 
I didn't actually meet expectations with those finals, but I was sewing. I was actually doing needlepoint in my room when they thought I was doing homework. You were absolutely preparing yourself for what you're doing now, which is creating art and teaching. Well, there you are. Childhood and growing up, you, you never know what you're going to learn that's going to come into the future. Well, I'm just so glad that we've all been able to bring that forward. You know, we've all been able to find something that we love to do, to explore it, to have a career and build a career around it. And this, I think, is the perfect thing to be telling our kids and and everyone is that you don't have to do, you don't have to follow the path that you think is going to be, you know, the most crazy, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we were always, I mean, I, I always thought, like, I was least likely to get married, right? You know, at high school, Catherine, Catherine, no, not her, she's, you know, because I was doing this marketing job about how hard I was working, right? So, and I got married at 20 in the end, but, you know, so I went to, I picked my, my major to be something that was useful, to be something that I would always be employed in, to be something, you know, all that good stuff, So I don't say that my education was a waste because I met my husband, but I learned lots of, I learned lots of other skills besides, you know, the science major I was pursuing. But when, when I'm talking to other people and they're worrying about what their children are going to take at college and everything. Yeah. I'm absolutely just let them do something that they're going to enjoy because then they're more likely to finish. They're more likely to graduate. They're going to be more successful. And how many people actually use their degree? I use mine every day. I know how to use a comma, sequential commas. I was an English major. I know <laughs> I know how to write a full sentence. Um, but, you know. Well, we did that at high school. Yeah. You know what, though? So here's the thing. Just do what you love. And I love doing handwork. And yeah. I love that you do handwork yes. and that Susan loves it etc. So thank you yeah. so much yeah. for sharing everything that you've shared. I'm going to put a link to your new book on our uh, on our website and we'll have some pretty images. So if people want to see what you've been doing, maybe what Susan's been doing, I can put a little my handwork on there too. I'd love to share that with everyone. And I'd also love to see what other people are doing. So if yeah, you want absolutely. to share your handwork and what you've been playing with, um, with the Quilting Arts Podcast audience, just um, just tag us. Definitely do that. Do that. Hashtag QA Podcast. And we'd love to see what you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's, it's always good to talk with you too. It's like coming into the room with friends. What an interesting conversation. She's always... Not, not only so fun to listen to just because I just love listening to her accent, but what she has to say is always very interesting too. You know, I always learn a lot from Catherine. Yeah. And I think this is a time when handwork is really meaningful and it serves so many purposes. It was fun to hear her thoughts about it. And also just, you know, her experience of growing up in Britain with the emphasis on craft at a young age. I think we could learn a lot from that. I think we can, but I think there's also that universal too, that, you know, all three of us share having learned from a parent who loved it and to a certain extent, passing it on to our children too, because, you know, we have to remember as well that our children are young and they still have young-ish and they still have um, that parenthood thing 
um, in front of them too, where they might decide that they want to do more handwork as well and pass it on to their next generation. Absolutely. So meaningful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Susan, do you have a quote to share with us today? I do. This is one that you may have heard before, but I think it's really lovely. This is by St. Francis of Assisi. And he said or wrote, he who works with his hands is a laborer. He who works with his hands and his head is a craftsman. He who works with his hands and his head and his heart is an artist. Well, Susan, I think that we know that you are an artist because you do all of those things. And I believe I'm an artist too, because I do all of those things as well, as is Catherine Redford. But also just thinking about St. Francis, I believe he was the patron saint of animals. And uh, I think it's, it's really fun that Catherine's embroideries are all about birds and all about, uh, you know, the beautiful butterflies, et cetera. So I think St. Francis would probably have enjoyed seeing what she did as well. Absolutely. It's been great talking to you again. I always look forward to our chats on our podcast and can't wait to see what's coming next. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's lots more information about the things we discussed in this episode, including photos and links on our show notes page. Just follow the link in the description to our website, quiltingdaily.com. If you want to hear episodes as soon as they come out, please subscribe. Just search for the Quilting Arts Podcast in whatever app you use, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And when you do, please leave a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. The Quilting Arts Podcast is a production of Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by Vivica Hanson-Denegri and Susan Brubaker-Nab. This episode was recorded and edited by Chad Franson. Sarah Erickson is our web producer. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 